We can't do this 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Why not? I like men like that. Men who give me pleasure. I've never had feelings like this. I have to get them into some sort of order. If you have to talk, remember to ask lots of work questions if you want more than a yes or no answer. You'll just have an exam. You just take them to the lavatory and you have sex with them. Weird not having anybody come on you. Hey, we're back. Hey, Sarah. Hey, Mary. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm good. Happy Scorpio season. Happy Scorpio season. We're... Is it treating you well? Yes, very well. I feel like we're so in our element. We this... are so powerful right now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I can feel it in my fingertips. Me too. <laughs> Definitely. It's a good time to be a Scorpio because we are just, we're the head of our powers. We're manifesting. We really are. And it's not been easy. No. Because it's been it's a challenging astrological season with mm -hmm. all of the eclipses of lunar and solar varieties. But yeah, we're doing okay. We, we thrive on challenges. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, we're not just surviving, we're thriving. Yeah, we are. And we're between our two birthdays. Yeah, I know. Maybe we'll be um, past my birthday when we next record, because we're going to give you guys an extra episode of this season. Mm -hmm. um, we're going to be recording with Dario from the Cinematologist podcast. Yeah. Um, and we're going to be covering some also runs. Yeah, because we kept saying that there's so many other titles within the field of er erotic cinema that we could have easily have added to our season, but maybe we could just briefly touch on them with Dario. And while you're listening, make sure you're subscribed to Cinematologist mm -hmm. and give them a follow. So you actually had an appearance on their podcast. You were reviewing Censor. Oh my God, that film is so good. Yes, brilliant. I, I mean, I think because it was the first time I really watched it kind of analytically, mm -hmm. it was when it all kind of really clicked into place for me how well designed and how brilliant that film is. Yeah. So it was such a pleasure to watch it again. And obviously it was very lovely to talk to talk about it with um, with Dario as well. And for a, like an audience of really cute, nice film students. Aww. Well. Really <laughs> Amazing. Funny. Yeah. Amazing. And you had your Zodiac screening as well. Yeah, Halloween went really well. Thanks again to the Garden Cinema for that. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, I'm really feel back in my element with Zodiac because I think it's taken a long time for cinema in general to kind of come back after the pandemic. Yeah. And I really felt like this was the first time it's been like big. So it's been really nice and it's kind of spurred me on to new things. So yeah, good good start to Scorpio season. Both Amazing. Of those things. Yeah. Great to hear. Great to yeah. hear. And you've been doing Women in Horror. Yes, well. I, yes, absolutely. So I did that for the Freud Museum and it went well. 
And they've also been so keen on our erotic cinema season here on the podcast. They actually asked me to bring back the theme to teach in February, so the weekend before Valentine's Day. Um, I mean, I have taught this course for them before, a few years ago, but I think they just wanted to have it also online. Oh, definitely. Um, and like, yeah. there's, you can never have enough erotic cinema. Exactly. Yeah, my feeling exactly. So for those of you listening, if you feel like you've missed the visual component to, to mm-hmm. what Sarah and I have been talking about, <laughs> you will get a chance to see all the sleazy scenes in the course for uh, the Freud Museum. But yeah, in the meantime, I've, you know, been sort of looking at new releases. I saw Barbarian. I really want to see that now that you've told me. Yeah. 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 I think that's one you will appreciate. I mean, people have been comparing it. I mean, this is not at all a spoiler. There's nothing intended here as like a plot reveal. There is no, there is no connection thematically, but people have been comparing it to malignant in the sense that it has that kind of same spirit of like schlocky horror, like a throwback to the kind of eighties style of horror. I'm so excited. I'm yeah. so excited. Yeah. Did I did we talk did I tell you that I'd seen Smile? Yes, yes, but you only told me over DMs. We hadn't actually discussed it further. Well, it's interesting. Like I it reminded me of Malignant 2. Mm. But I felt I mean I I actually did enjoy it. I thought it was a really fun watch. Yeah. But it did serve to like highlight how great Malignant is. Yes. And it was quite interesting because I thought that like I thought that smile is like the cb this like the cognitive behavioral therapy to malignant psychoanalysis (laughs) oh my god (laughs) and so i thought yeah it was like kind of a superficial look at mental health issues yeah um and then malignant is just it just makes malignant so much more intentional and well you know sort of Mm. well written and brilliant and it just really made me want to see it again yeah yeah i know i mean i'm kind of hoping that the director James Wan that he makes another film quite soon again even if it's not like a sequel to Malignant or anything I just I've really fell in love with his approach and he he just made me a fan of his really like he wasn't really on my radar that much before but now I've really developed an appreciation for what he does he's the is he not the conjuring guy Yes, he is. Yes. I like The Conjuring as well. I think The Conjuring has yes. got some Freudian stuff going on Definitely, yeah. Some weird daddy stuff going on yes. in The Conjuring <laughs> that I really enjoyed. And, and that's the thing, like, his films, I just feel like I could just watch them over and over again. Like, they've got that kind of, like, the that entertainment value. Definitely. That just, I'm always like, oh, what shall I stick on? Oh, I'll watch The Conjuring again. Yeah, it's you know? fun. It's it's fun, yeah. He's really got like a fun approach to cinema. Yeah, it's really nice. Oh, it's also really another nice. thing that I did around Halloween. My friend yeah. Georgie did like a cute little kind of almost like a chill like a children's Halloween party. Like she had like snacks and like you know like <laughs> scary snacks and things like that. Nice. And she invited us all around, and it, we sat around and watched Urban Legend on her big TV. <gasps> Oh, it was just so much fun. I haven't had that experience for such a long time of watching a film with a group of friends. It completely reminded me of my teen years. Because I just don't think people do that anymore, mainly partly because, like, you know, people don't really have their own space so much. People don't have a TV and everyone just watches stuff on their own and on Netflix, which I think is is not really a good way to enjoy cinema. Like, maybe some films, but... Like, it's just, it, I don't know, it was just so much fun. And most of them hadn't seen Urban Legend before. Well, they hadn't seen it for a long time. 
and it was just I don't know I love that film it's so camp it's so brilliant oh like, yeah it's brilliant it's, it's so brilliant I love yeah. it yeah, I love how outlandish it is. <laughs> and I had so many like facts because I've listened to so many podcasts about it and yeah. read up about it. So like I was like regaling everyone with facts. And, like, I was like, why do you know so much about this movie? <laughs> I just oh my really god, like you're so it. cute, honestly. <laughs> So yeah, it's <laughs> so nice. Sweet. So I feel like yeah, it's a good time for communal cinema experiences at the moment. I've had some really nice times. What else did I want to bring up to you? You have to tell everyone about your book. Oh, yeah. Well, the book that the Freud Museum published with Phoenix is now out. Freud Lynch, Behind the Curtain. The story behind this book is that Jamie and Stefan from the Freud Museum, they put up this event. It must have been like four years ago now. I can't remember the exact year, but it was like a special conference on David Lynch at the Rio Cinema. And I was one of the speakers, along with a bunch of other people talking about David Lynch movies. And then after that, Stefan and Jamie decided they wanted to create a book, like edit a book made up of chapters written by all the presenters. And so, yeah, pick it up. It's called Freud Lynch Behind the Curtain. It's got a fantastic cover. And oh, good, because I hate books that, I hate, like, <sighs> film books that have bad covers. Just yes. more annoyed. Well, I can't wait to read it. I, for one, love your writing. Thank so you. It's going to be amazing. Thank you so much. Thank you. Besides that, what else did I want to bring up? Yeah, I mean, in the spirit of recent films that we've been watching, mm-hmm. and also harking back to what we've already covered with House of Hammer, uh, I watched that One Taste documentary on Netflix about the orgasm cult. <laughs> Oh my god, I cannot wait to see this. Yeah. yeah. From what you've told me, I yeah, I cannot wait to see it and discuss it with you. Yeah, I mean, the, literally, like, I, I tuned in kind of not thinking anything of it. I didn't think it was going to be something that was going to, like, rock my world. But when I tell you that I couldn't get my jaw off the floor and I couldn't believe what how they had structured this documentary so many bombshells and there's so many philosophical problems with it not not even necessarily even with the cult and I'm gonna put that out there like I yeah I I remember listening I listened to the podcast about this cult Mm. and like yeah I don't think the podcast was structured like that because I didn't I don't sort of remember it being particularly Mm. philosophically wrong Mm. so I'd be very interested to see what's happened <laughs> with this documentary I had some quite interesting thoughts about the, that the entire situation mm. like not yeah I mean we'll discuss it there's no one else in the world that I want to talk about this more <laughs> than you Sarah because I feel like you're going to keep me sane in that in the in the maddening chaotic process of this movie which also is very compelling like I strongly urge all listeners of our show to watch it because it's pure projections podcast territory um truly I I was just gonna skate over that I was like oh another documentary but now I'm gonna have to go back to it and watch it yeah like I am dying to know your first impressions and then to have our talk about it we will release our show we haven't decided yet where we're gonna put it out but you guys will hear us talking about it like a hundred percent Mm-hmm. You definitely will. I'm so excited. <laughs> <laughs> I can't believe like we're now basically at the end of our erotic cinema series. I know. I mean, and also I feel like we keep ending our series on like really sad films. I know. <laughs> I have to be more careful. <laughs> like sometimes when we plan our structure. <laughs> like, 
Um, but actually, before we start, um, I know that we went into this a little bit when we did the LFF roundup. Mm-hmm. I wasn't prepared last time. So I want to repeat some of the recent donations. Yeah. Um, because some of the recent people left little messages on the donation box, Aww. which doesn't always happen. But when they do, it's really nice to read them out. So from um, Susanna Vilchez Ahiado. I'm so sorry. I'm like a fucking primary school teacher from the 90s. Um, (laughs) To my beautiful ladies, I need this podcast forever inside my brain holes. Heart, 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 (laughs) Suspiria. Because I think she's Suspiria on um, Instagram. Yes. Um, So that was great. And from Ian Healy, who frequently donates to us. Um, Hard to believe this series is over already. It's not, Ian. We've got one more episode. (laughs) Two more episodes. Yeah. Um, It's been such a blast and great great fun to listen to you both. All the best and have fun at LFF, which we did. Thank you, Ian. We did. (laughs) Um, And we also received another donation from Tracy Haichu, um, plus our regular ones from Virgil Yendel, James Abbott, Caitlin Hancock and Carl Murtog. So... Yeah, we're very overwhelmed and grateful. Wow. And can definitely pay for our website for another year, which is very, very nice to know. Oh, my gosh. I am so touched. And truly, it's such a huge vote of confidence to our podcast that you guys want to support us, that you listen, and that you want us to keep going. Like, it is, it feels so encouraging. And you guys are all so supportive. Thank you so much. Yeah, it's really lovely. I'm really, yeah, makes us really happy. Thank you so much. Yeah. Oh, that's very sweet. <laughs> I know, like, and now we're ending, like, basically, this is our seventh show in the series um, of Erotic Cinema, and we're going to be talking about paraphilias. Paraphilias. You know what? I didn't even Google paraphilias. How fucking unprepared <laughs> am I? <laughs> Don't worry. It just means sick fuck. <laughs> I just, I just was like, Mary will tell me like, what it means. Basically, it's, I mean, I don't, I haven't even come across that much concrete stuff to report from Freud necessarily, because it's kind of more embedded in a sort of subtle way all throughout his writings, where he's talking mm-hmm. about like abnormal sexuality, abnormal psychology. But when we're talking about paraphilia, this is the experience of intense sexual arousal to atypical objects, situations, fantasies, behaviors, or individuals. Mm -hmm. And it's been defined as a sexual interest in anything other than a consenting human partner. I mean, that's one definition of it. Interesting. There's no scientific consensus for any precise border between like unusual sexual interests and paraphilic ones. There is like this debate over which if any of the paraphilia should be listed in diagnostic manuals, like the DSM mm-hmm. or the in- International Classification of Diseases, the ICD. And even like the number of paraphilias and the taxonomy of them is under debate. There's a source that lists as many as 549 types of paraphilia. That's insane. That's insane. I didn't even know there were 549 things you could be aroused by. <laughs> I mean, like, surely they fit into like larger categories. Yeah. You know? I <laughs> but, like, um... I've just got my top five, you know? <laughs> <laughs> Actually, maybe we should research them because I feel like I need some more inspiration. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I feel like my imagination is getting like lazy. Yeah. I need to spice things up. Actually, um, once I had a dream, yeah. I was aroused by balloons in like a very specific <gasps> shade of pink. 
Whoa, that's interesting. I can't remember what, like, I wrote it down. So I obviously, like, it went out of my head completely because I didn't need to remember it anymore. But part of the dream was, like, I was just thrilled to be surrounded by all of these, like, pink balloons in a sexual way. Like millennial pink? <laughs> yeah, like millennial pink. It was millennial pink. <laughs> Which is also zodiac pink a little bit. Which is also zodiac pink. Um, although zodiac is leading towards the purple these days. Um, mm -hmm. But yeah, no, it's millennial pink. You're completely right. It's It was millennial pink balloons. Ooh. How weird is that? That's very interesting. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, now that you say it, if I'm thinking about like a sex club, there's something enticing imagining like it being filled with balloons. I don't know why. <laughs> Yeah, totally. Have you seen like, I mean, this is a weird place to go from sex, sex club, but on TikTok, people make their children like bouncy castles out of like, sort of like vacuum packed balloons. Like yes. they put like a load of balloons in like a vacuum packed bag and like suck all the air out of it. And then they're like bouncy castles and the balloons don't burst. Yes. That would be good for a sex club. <laughs> yes, definitely. Yeah, I mean, yeah, actually, balloons are super sexy. I don't know why I didn't, like, just admit that to myself. Before. <laughs> I took that dream and you to tell me. <laughs> Brilliant. Oh, my God. <laughs> See, this could be another big project. Like, if we had, like, an angel investor. Yeah. You know, if there's any billionaires in the chat, you should be picking think, up what we're putting down. 100%. I think that there should be more spaces in the UK that are, like, dedicated to sex like Agreed. i don't know why we don't have like love hotels for example oh, no. and i think it's a shame that the pornographic cinema is no more same sarah oh my god i'm so glad you said that amen sister yeah i think I, it's just a tragedy that it's not a thing anymore like i know i mean i guess like i know i know the problem the problem in any of these spaces is fluids and yes but like you know you just pay the cleaners like three times what a normal exactly like, and I could see that taking off on TikTok. You know, you get like people on like, I'm talking about TikTok too much, but you know, you get people <laughs> who are like crime scene cleaners or like they clean up after like hoarders and things mm -hmm. or people that clean really filthy rugs. Like I could totally see an account of someone that cleans like all the cum off. 100%. You know, and all of like the various different ways that you get it off. Like there'll be some amazing, there'll probably be like a Channel 4 show about like, lemon and vinegar mixing <laughs> like it would be great I think it's yeah I think it's a travesty that you have that these things in other countries and you don't have it here we need those spaces for you know perverted people like where else are they supposed to go that's so true and it's not even like it's like the just so many like millennials and gen z's like have to live with their parents or with family members because the mm. cost of living is like unsustainable yes like you know me and alex were like constantly looking for places to have sex when we first met because we were both like living with family yeah so like it's you know it's it, it was essential i thought about it several times a week that i would love like a pay by the hour hotel or like yeah or a sex cinema a sex cinema would be amazing you know, it's so funny when I was watching that Dahmer uh, series mm. on, on Netflix, like it shows him going to what looks like kind of after hours clubs, but they have like beds, you know, and like little sectioned off rooms where gay men go and have sex. Mm. It's not exactly a hotel. It does look more like a club. Yeah. It's got like a party atmosphere and people can also socialize in a communal area. And I was like, I want to go to a place like that. Everything sucks when, like, when, you know, like, a tiny percentage of people own all the property. I know. Because, like, no one fucking wants to open their property for sex. Exactly. <laughs> yes, well said. That is exactly or, the problem. Indeed, cinema. 
you know like it's just yeah. it's all live music or like clubs or anything just everyone Anything's wants to vital. Be like a, a private residence or a fucking restaurant yeah it's, it's or like an office space or something or an office space or we work Ugh, like Please. No, we need these eroticized spaces. Please. Let's start going and having sex in WeWorks until they go. That's going to get the point across. (laughs) Meet me in the Skype booth. (laughs) (laughs) We're going to live stream our adventure. Oh my God. Love it. Yeah. I know we've prepared you guys for Nymphomaniac and Crash. Like and subscribe. Let's let's start with Nymphomaniac first, because I'm I'm gonna put to you that I believe that Crash, there's something good happening there. Okay, well I'm glad that you think so <laughs> because you know like, I already don't have I don't have a good time with David Cronenberg. Like I never enjoy mm. a Cronenberg film apart from The Fly, which is very oh, romantic. Yeah, uh, but Love that, that, like every time I watch David Cronenberg film, I just leave feeling completely empty and miserable. Oh, so God. it would be good if you had something to uplift me after that. Yeah, but, I do. I do. I feel like I can I can bring it back round to like a hopeful place. Okay, I'm glad. I'm glad. Okay, yeah. well, let's start with Infomaniac, Volume okay. 1 and 2. Yeah. Um, 2013, Lars von Trier. Mm. Joe, a self-diagnosed nymphomaniac, is found beaten on the street by Seligman, a well-read but cloistered bachelor. When Seligman takes her in, Joe uses the artifacts inside his house to re- as prompts to recount the story of her life and attempt to convince him that she is a terrible person. Mm, Short and sweet. Okay. Short and sweet. Yeah, it captures it perfectly. Lars von Trier, you know, we're we're Lars heads here, so of course we yeah. love the movie. <laughs> Even it though it's depressing, I like did enjoy spending time in that in his world. Like I think yeah. it's so funny and clever and I just love a Lars von Trier film. Yeah, so, me too. But I did accidentally watch the director's the extended director's cut, so I was watching oh. this for like six hours. <laughs> and I have to say, I prefer the the, the theatrical cut. Okay, because I think the director's cut is just too long, mm. and it's like some of the things that happen are a little like they're they're so bleak that they're a little ridiculous. Yeah, like the abortion, the oh, self-abortion yeah. scene. I just was like, oh come on, this is absurd. Yeah. Like, <laughs> you know. <laughs> yeah, I do remember that. Um, yeah. I, I agree. Theatrical cut much better. Yeah, everyone, everyone's better when they edit. Everyone, Always. even the great Lars von Trier. Yes, absolutely. Mm-hmm. And I think this was the first time I ever saw. Yeah, this was the first time when I ever saw your doppelganger, Mia yeah. Goth. That's because it is her film debut. Is it really her debut? Okay, yeah. I, I wasn't sure. Oh, interesting. Yeah, she had never been in anything. I remember this is when we all first saw Mia Goth, the internet's oh, favorite. Love her. Oh my God. Like, I, it was so crazy because when I was re watching it and her scenes were coming on, I'm like, that is actually like that's Sarah, you know? Like, I couldn't, I couldn't believe it. It's so uncanny. Like, she's you. I love her so much. I yeah. love her so, she's so beautiful in this. She's so beautiful and she's just captivating. I really love her. Yeah. So that must have been when she first met then Shia LaBeouf, right? Yeah, I guess so. Mm, and now okay. she has his baby, which is crazy. Crazy. <laughs> um, but yeah, like also, um, I'm sorry, but these two films, they like 
continue the cycle of erotic films having men who you can't understand. <laughs> like, I do not know what Shia LaBeouf is saying. Like, I don't know what that accent is. I don't. What, know what is that saying. accent? Is it Australian? I like, got, who knows? Who knows what it is? It's so bizarre. And then, like, it's also very quiet. Everyone talks very quietly. And then by the time you get to Crash, everyone's whispering. Why are you whispering? (laughs) Why do they rack and whisper or talk completely incoherently in erotic films? Yeah, it's so true. (laughs) so weird. With Nymphomaniac, so obviously, like, I've always understood this movie as being a part of the Depression trilogy. Mm -hmm. In not necessarily a, even a trilogy, more like a triptych that starts with Antichrist, Melancholia, and then ends with Nymphomaniac. Mm-hmm. You're quite right about the guys be- seeming a bit like incomprehensible. Um, but I just think that even just looking across Lars's filmography, the men are always cartoonish. And like, there's no women who are super complex and developed and interesting and you know they're so kind of compelling and the guys just seem a bit a bit idiotic yeah that's actually true with the exception of jamie bell's character who did yes. not seem idiotic at all no i love him in that oh my god what a revelation what a revelation <laughs> like billy Elliot, who knew i mean that's why it's excellent casting because he's so playing against type <laughs> really is he's amazing actually you know what like when you watch this film a few times and mm. you kind of you know you get you like know joe like really well so yeah. you can kind of look outside her and look at other characters there mm. are some fascinating characters like you know who i would like to see a spin-off of mm. is like the pretty like head secretary at the, her office who Ooh. like starts out being a total bitch and is then like and then is then like I think you're in love with him you just totally leave that letter on his desk it's like who are you like, <laughs> she's so interesting yeah she is all of the little side characters are so good you know yeah it really has a lot of I mean it could have easily have been even a tv show 100% like I think that he should, yeah like we said this in the yeah the LFF review but like I don't know why he doesn't do more tv this could have been the perfect vehicle to yeah. launch a TV series. Because as you said, there's so many great side characters. Uh, I mean, there is just so much going on in this movie. Once again, here he's returning to the to the old kind of framework or structure of Marquis de Sade's Justine, mm-hmm. you know, uh, a character basically like confessing their sort of sordid or checkered history. They're sort of almost like on in the hot seat and having to justify themselves. It's almost as if Joe is an avatar, really, for Lars von Trier. Probably he feels like he's always having to justify himself. I really thought that. It, like, really, there's sort of, there's this kind of bit where she's, like, sort of saying, I'm, like, she's basically trying to convince him that she's bad. Yeah. And, like, it just kind of made me wonder, because it's actually something that Alex said to me when we were watching Censor. Uh-huh. Um, he said he just like turned to me like Alex will do sometimes just do these like evocative statements and then not explain them at all um, which is really frustrating but he just turned <laughs> to me and was like was like we watch horror films because we feel guilty wow and I was like oh you're so sexy um, <laughs> <laughs> but I kind of it made me think about that like the idea of like yeah. self-fulfilling guilt like we always think that like we feel guilty because of the things we do, but what if the guilt is already there? Yeah. And what if Lars von Trier is just 
just feels guilty. Yeah. And that's why he does the things he does and he yeah. makes the films that he makes and why he like says the stuff he says. Yeah. Because he just has a guilt complex. And that kind of seems like she's just there like being like, I am this horrible person and unable. Mm. And it's like, and then giving like really, and it's just sort of, but she's decided that early on yeah and then she just does these things to kind of fulfill that idea of herself exactly. this image of herself and then i was like is that maybe what Lars von Trier is doing but- i think so yeah i think so i think he always feels ambivalent mm. ab- about himself i'm sure he wants to through his provocative style maybe try and overcome that but he's he is i think maybe coming always from that place yeah there are so many good examples of like deviant behavior in this movie. Mm. There's like just almost like countless examples. Probably one of my favorite is when Joe and her friend are on the train. Oh, it's an amazing scene. It's amazing. Trying to seduce as many men as they can. It's like a contest between themselves for sweets. I would, I, it really, I loved that so much because I do mm. think that female sexuality for I mean, not for everyone. Yeah. But for a lot of women, it takes a while to kind of like blossom. It takes a while to be yeah. enjoyable, and so like I do think that early on in our sexual in our like sexual experience, there is always like a bag of chocolate sweets. Like I feel like you're always <laughs> doing it for like another reason. Yeah. You know, like the yeah. and I, you know, for like, whatever you've like replaced like actual pleasure for, mm-hmm. and so I just thought that was so like so brilliantly like sort of symbolized by the bag of chocolate sweeties yeah like that was really the prize like boys have the license just to have physical pleasure Mm. like no questions asked there doesn't need to be another negotiation or a compromise but for girls it's so much more fraught like there's so many expectations put on us and like assumptions about our capacity for physical pleasure and things that are just wholly taken for granted or just neglected that you almost need a prop you need something as you rightly say to put in the place of what it is you're aiming for yeah you're not even aiming for pleasure anymore you're just aiming for like this arbitrary prize at the end it was also very childish like a bag of sweets it's so childish it's so funny that bag of sweets does look good though yeah, it was a good one. <laughs> but you know what I had? I just have to share this with you because it just, it is so emblematic of so much of what Lars is trying to dismantle in his movie. So as I was preparing for this episode, I was like looking at, if, sometimes I do this, like I'll just go on YouTube and listen to a few reviews just to see, just to take a temperature of what the culture is saying about a movie. Mm-hmm. I came across this one guy. I don't even want to give him the benefit of sharing his channel name because he deserves zero views. The guy is a prick. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, he was full of shit just, you know, right out the gate. And he was like talking about this movie in extremely disparaging terms and extremely judgy, extremely like ignorant and very rude and condescending. And then, but it was particularly the, the, his description of this scene that I was like, wow, thank you so much for proving Lars's point. He's like, I watched that scene and I couldn't believe that Lars has these young women uh, trying to seduce men on a train because then I went and talked to my 
female friends and they told me that they just want to when they embark on a train all they're interested in is to find a quiet seat away from the peering eyes of perverted men so that they can just like get to their destination unhassled and i'm oh like my God. you fucking idiot like do you realize what you're saying you're basically saying in your extremely generalized language what based on a sample of two prudes that you know that women are have zero sexual drive women have zero sexual instinct and whenever they're in a situation a public situation with men their number one goal is to get away unscathed get away unmolested because there is no sex radiating from the female form I love that he was like, it's my two female friends, which yeah. obviously verbatim what the women he harassed on a train once. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> you don't have female friends. <laughs> like, yeah. Just one woman was like, could you just leave me alone? I'm just trying to get on, the, like, go about my day on skate. Literally, like, ah. that's what happened. <laughs> and he's just like reframing it. That's so that's funny a- because that, like, that scene made me want to try it. Like, me too I was like me I thought too. that scene was so exhilarating and exciting and it yeah. totally made me want to like get on a train and see just like how like how sort of stupid I could sound and still make <laughs> someone have sex with me because they're so like they're so dumb when they said like when she's like just look all sorts of work questions and she's like who <laughs> knows where the toilets are (laughs) it's it's amazing it still works you know yeah it's like it literally is shooting fish in a barrel that's why it's so funny like but it's just pure fun it's very dynamic it's you know it's a vibrant scene and especially what I thought where I think it edged it even closer to deviancy for me is when they do meet this guy who's basically told told them that he's gonna try and conceive a baby yeah I know that's really I thought that you would love that though because you're frightened of pregnancy (laughs) no but I thought (laughs) no listen they did a good deed they did a very good deed by seducing him and get him get him to blow his load on the train you know it definitely appealed to my antinatalist sensibilities but I think what I found especially deviant about it was the fact that he admitted that he was trying to procreate and they they ruined his chance. Yeah. And there's some kind of evil energy around that, which I'm not like, I'm not knocking, you know, I'm just saying that it's extremely transgressive. It's definitely a power move. It is totally transgressive. Yeah, you're right. Like, you know I, what I mean, was that wife waiting at home? Yeah. Like, my fucking basal body temperature <laughs> so that my husband can get a blowjob from a teenager like with one he brought me some shitty chocolates from the train station like I would be <laughs> it's true evil energy evil energy it is pretty evil it's true and all for a bag of chocolate sweeties yeah exactly exactly like it's not like they were trying to get into a relationship with this guy you know it it was pure it was just to fuck with him and like they did I suppose even just that mindset which Joe now feels ambivalent about in her older age I get maybe she's sort of she feels like oh you know actually I'm a bad person you know I've made all these choices what did you consider to be within that spirit of deviancy and like transgression (laughs) Oh, I don't know. Like, I mean, actually, can I just go back to the the bit? Yeah. 
Is that yeah. really how sperm works? Like you have you only got one shot. <laughs> I thought like the nature of sperm was that it was un it was unlimited. No. Oh, okay. I didn't know that. <laughs> I mean, we're back on the topic of my favorite bodily fluids. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the, the the faithful listeners of this podcast already know. Um, <laughs> you know, apparently it needs to be replenished. Like there needs to be some time that passes. Right. Okay. Which once again, I think, you know, Jacques Lacan was right. You know, this goes back to like validating what he said about male sexuality which which always operates under the condition of having to rise and fall you know there's there is no limitless supply you know I'm so like i i need to like get it into my head because i've i've like questioned this before on the podcast i know like, I'm just like, i think they're pretending <laughs> <laughs> it's just an urban legend it's an urban legend like because i can't like i can't I know in my head that like they're not just multi-orgasmic like we are yeah but, it's so alien to me yeah so weird sorry guys um okay <laughs> so the transgressive parts of the of the film I guess like I suppose when I guess when she leaves her baby alone at night yeah <laughs> like, that's really dark oh man yeah um and yeah I did also find I just, it was more like the abortion scene for me, it was more mm. like, it was just so absurd. Like when the, the like nurse is like, and do you love the father of your baby? Like, and it was just like, no oh, one would yeah. say that. And like, I know that there are going to be some people out there that's going to be like, that society we're working towards with the whole Roe v. Wade <laughs> thing. But it's like, so it mm. seems like she doesn't, it seems like she, it seems like she does it to herself unnecessarily. Mm-hmm. Like it seems like, she does it to herself because she just can't put up with like being asked an inconvenient question or being asked like a, a rude question. Yeah. You know, so I like, I found that like myself losing sympathy for her at that moment because I was just like, there's no reason for you to be doing this. Yeah. It's just, it's so gross and like, it's so upsetting and there's yeah. just no need. Um, but yeah. So I think those are the like most transgressive things about it. It's like you wanted to pull that baby out of yourself all by yourself. Like that seems yeah. violent, you know. It's interesting that you're you mentioned it almost alongside her leaving her kid alone as well, mm-hmm. while she's she's going out to get like her rocks off, and then the baby like edges towards the balcony. Yeah. Am I remembering that correctly? It's, it's almost, almost like a copy of Antichrist. Of Antichrist, right? Yeah. Which I think is just this recurring preoccupation for Lars that like, you know, because he's got mommy issues. His mom lied to him about his paternity. It's true. And I did think that when we were, when, you know, because all of like actually her worst crimes are like around, centered around like procreation and childbirth and exactly. children. And she doesn't have a very nice childhood. No, like, she doesn't. She, she feels hates like her unwanted. Mom. Yeah. So, but also interestingly, she calls her mom a cold bitch, right? Mm-hmm. And the she only remembers her mom like really playing solitaire, yeah, which is interesting as well, like a solitary game on her own. So it's like it's painting this picture of someone who's like very self-centered, not putting the child's needs above herself. Mm-hmm. But interestingly, in the film *Nymphomaniac*, Joe's mom is called Kay, but Jamie Bell's character is also called Kay. Yes, I noticed that. That was so interesting. I think there's something about the way that it's structured that she has to go and see this like S&M practitioner who's very like unorthodox. Mm. And like, 
he doesn't even want, want to know her name and he calls her Fido. Yeah. <laughs> Which, you know, is it seems like very abusive on the surface, right? And he also refuses to have intercourse with her and uses like blood knots to give her 40 lashes. And it's only at that point that she's able to reach orgasm because she'd, she'd been having numbness mm-hmm. um, like on, in her vulva or or whatever. Like there's some the lack of sensation, which I read as like almost anhedonia, like a mild form of depression. Mm-hmm. But I just think that it's interesting that they're both called K because maybe – the the encounters with Jamie Bell is really just like Joe going back to the source of pain that like caused her pleasure to stop and having to process the trauma of like her cold bitch of a mother who turned her back playing solitaire. It's like Jamie Bell is somehow echoing that too. Um, Yeah, definitely. You're right. You know, but she's overcoming it though. I think funnily enough, I actually think that, it's it's a positive thing what she's doing with with Kay. Like that, you know, he's he's actually helped her to reach her pleasure again. The, the the perverse thing is what Seligman tries to do with her because he's presenting himself as like a an innocent, a virgin who says, Oh, I can't don't worry, like I'm not gonna get turned on. Like I don't I can't relate to your dirty stories. And he claims to be a good listener, a good judge. But then he he sexually assaults her in the end when she's sleeping. Yeah, he's a rogue therapist. He is a rogue therapist. Wow, another one for your list, Sarah. And Jamie Bell is a good therapist ja- because exactly. Jamie Bell refuses to sleep with his clients. Exactly, it's like rule one of being yeah. a good therapist. <laughs> Yeah, very well said. Exactly. Jamie Bell, even though he's unorthodox, he he's disciplined and he, he has boundaries. He doesn't cross boundaries with her. Whereas, funnily enough, you know, the character Seligman, I actually think, I don't know whether this is done purposefully or not, but he shares his name with Martin Seligman, who's a positive psychology guru. Oh my God, I didn't know that. Yeah, Martin Seligman is like, a, a, I mean, I remember him from like back in the day, and unfortunately, the university I went to in Canada was very like pro psychology and anti psychoanalysis. That's why I came here. I'm like a, <laughs> I'm a psychoanalysis refugee, guys. <laughs> um, I landed on the friendly shores of the UK, where <laughs> where psychoanalysis was not a dirty word. But anyway, Martin Seligman, he was like he he's kind of like um a very famous figure of the positive psychology movement, which is bullshit. It's just pure bullshit. It's just telling people not to have negative thoughts, presenting this like demeanor of only positive all the time. It's like toxic positivity is what it is. Oh my God. And that's exactly what the character does. Exactly. She says he like finds these like obscure ways to make it not a big deal. Yes, exactly. He's going out of his way to try and like, almost like, brush the darkness under the carpet and present this like nice respectable picture but jamie bell doesn't do that he goes right for the source of the pain and he forces her to work through it oh i love those scenes so much me too like they're just amazing and i love everything about jamie bell's aesthetic like he has like a kind of industrial all those like lockers yeah like i just think it's so influential to me like i love an industrial room we need a place like that to go to. We do. Oh my god! Like, the, oh, that's another business. Like, <laughs> all the, like BDSM scenarios in like different rooms, and I would yes. have it in like an old school building. 
Yes. And I would have one of them be piano lessons. Wow. So you get your rocks off and you learn piano. That's very uh, Michael Haneke of you. Oh, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> wow, I love that. If we designate properly thought out SM scenarios, designated spaces to like work through those things, then we'll stop being so fucking masochistic and sadistic in the rest of society. Yeah, 100%. 100%. Yeah. If you build it, they will come. <laughs> <laughs> Sarah, you killed me. It's <laughs> so good. I love like what's I love that the mystery around it is like where does she find him? Like I love yeah. how like underground sex life is just so like she just like completely leaves society. Yeah. And goes somewhere, like she just knows what she gets to like like if you if I was like Mary, find me a gangster, like you wouldn't even know where to start. But she like knows how to find like a gangster to go and work for. It's amazing. It is amazing. But I mean, speaking of that line of work that she chooses. There was another great paraphilia scene with someone that they were targeting to pay back some money. Mm-hmm. And which, again, I, I thought it was like a very interesting scene, very protracted, but carefully executed scene where they've got them strapped to a chair with his like dick out. And Joe is describing various sen- sexual scenarios to see what's going to like turn him on. They're using that, I suppose, to manipulate him to like, get the money out of him yeah they're gonna blackmail him with like whatever they find exactly and eventually like like so joe just keeps talking about various scenarios and nothing nothing's happening like he's he's like not hard and then she eventually gets to the topic of children in a playground and that's when he gets aroused so it turns out he's a pedo Mm -hmm. and i was really fascinated by the like the logic of that they had come out with ultimately like how joe was describing the situation how she said that he got aroused but he seemed ashamed about that and in that moment she felt like she pitied him and so she gave him like a pity blowjob she said she ruined his life that's right like and that is like i think it's true (laughs) yes definitely but then she also went on to say that in a way he should be praised for resisting his urges. It's clearly the thing that turns him on, but he's not acting on it. He's not harming any kids. He's, ha- he's just basically like, this is his cross to bear. He's living in shame of what he truly desires. Mm-hmm. And I thought that was a really interesting way of looking at it. I'd never really considered that point of view before. Lars von Trier here is using this extreme case, which is also a very scary social issue you know people get very uncomfortable and rightly so around the idea of like kids being harmed like that and so Lars is like going there I think more to use it as a almost like an allegory for other dark thoughts that we might harbor that we might never act on but we have to on a daily basis like confront those darker impulses even though like we are resisting the urge to like manifest them yeah I think that's true like, it just flies in the face of normie culture. It does very much. And I think it's, like, it's so true that we all feel so guilty. Yeah. Like, about all various different things, you know? Yeah, like, it goes back to what you said. Yeah. And I think, like, that's just one example of someone who 
you know has got you know has sort of has something to feel guilty about but we all kind of i mean like if freud is right then we all have like mm. incestuous desires for yeah. our parents and all of that kind of stuff yeah so like we're all like i don't know i think that's what i like i think we've said this before on the podcast that's what i like about psychoanalysis like we're all dangerous perverts and we're kind yes. of like equal and it's nice like it's a nice place to start off with <laughs> agreed so it's such a relief when you can just say that at the outset because then you don't have to keep up the appearance of constantly proving your good intent. Yeah, it's so true. Like, yeah, if anyone de- listening like that, like has to hear us say that we like are against pedophilia, then you're like, then please stop listening. Like, yeah, exactly. You know, it should just like, be taken as read. Exactly. Like, you know, we don't need to, we don't, we should never feel compelled to prove our character. If you've already been with us, all this time and you've heard our dialogue and you've listened to the complexities of the issues we talk about then there's nothing we need to prove to you Mm -hmm. it makes me sad that joe isn't really cured at the end of this film i know and that like i also think there's like there's an interesting thing running through it where like she kind of starts out Mm. with this like best friend yeah. Um, who I think like in, who is she's like incredibly like betrayed by when the best friend falls in love with a man. Oh yeah. And I thought that was like interesting. Like I feel like that's uh, down that like aspect of her life is downplayed. That like pa- childhood passion for her best for mm-hmm. her like female best friend mm-hmm. that's then kind of like replicated in this passion for Mia Goth's character. Wow. Like it's like I was like because it almost seems like it's going to come to like this lovely full circle and that's who like she's going to be with. Mm-hmm. And that's why it's so painful when Mia Goth yeah. like betrays her, and I don't, I don't even understand Mia Goth's like need to do that. Like her characters need to do that. It's so it's so brutal. That's it. So brutal. It's almost yeah. like she's not. It's almost like they're not real people. Like they're mm-hmm. they're like fantasies of like the worst thing that someone could do to you. Yeah. Like or like you know what they're like they're like her, they're like sort of they're like her. Um, they're like the embodiment of her fears about love. Yes. Yeah, I think so. And I think that it's interesting to kind of try and trace the journey of her pleasure in her tale mm. alongside, you know, those various like interpersonal relationships, like the frustration to reclaim her orgasm, you know, obviously it culminates in visits with Kay. Mm-hmm. But what's interesting also is that the more she visits Kate, the more neglectful she becomes in her domestic duties. Yeah. And then that's when she's like having to choose between her family and her sexual escapades. Ultimately, we we see her pursuing her erotic desire, you know? It's true. It kind of just like cements the fact that she shouldn't have got married and had yeah. the baby. Like, and you can see that when, like, she flashes back to when he proposes. I think this is cut out of the cinematic, of the uh-huh. cinema, the theatrical cut. When he proposes to her with that ring, she throws the ring into the fire. Yeah. going to play Cinderella. Uh-huh. And then she's like, watch the ring. And then she throws it into the fire. And he's like, what the fuck? <laughs> like, yeah. And then she says she has to give it back to him. Like, she doesn't get to keep it because she did, like, such a horrible thing. And threw yeah. it into the fire. So, like, I don't know. He should have known. <laughs> like... Why yeah. would you? This also begs the question: Why would you have a baby with someone who threw your ring into the fire? 
Like exactly. You know, it's like whenever we see these like films about terrible mothers, mm-hmm. I listened to like a podcast. I actually really like this podcast, Mummy Dearest, it's called. Mm-hmm. Um, and they were talking about the ring and they were talking okay. about what a terrible mother Naomi Watts is. And I'm always like, why does everyone always say that about Naomi Watts when like the, guy, the little boy's father isn't even like fathering? Thank you. And it's like, so it's also like, you know, it goes both ways. Like, why would, why would, um, is it Jerome? Yes, Jerome, yeah. Why would he marry her? Why would he have a baby with her? Why would he get her pregnant when she's, like, clearly yeah. not like a good person to have a baby with, you know? Like, where's his agency in all of this? Exactly. And he kind of makes her leave as well. Yeah. Like, he's always, like, you know, he's sort of, like, doing this, like, push-pull thing. Yeah. He's, you know, where he's like, wake up the baby. Mummy's leaving. Say goodbye, mummy. It's, like, it's not really her choice to leave. No. She kind of gets panicked. That's so, so true. Yeah, I don't know. He, I'm gonna uh, like. I know it's like not a real relationship, but you know, everyone who thinks they've like they're with a terrible person, why do? Why are you with that person? Exactly. Yeah, it takes two to tango. 100%. I include myself and my past relationships in that as well. I'm just as tough Same. on myself. Me too. Believe me, I am too. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god. Okay. Um, well, let's move on you to me a happy ending. <laughs> <laughs> This is going to be a happy ending episode, guys. <laughs> oh, dear. Okay, so Crash, 1996, David Cronenberg. Okay, film producer James Ballard and his detached wife, Catherine, have an open marriage. Their own sex life depends on the sharing of details from their extramarital trysts. Mm-hmm. While driving home from work late one night, James's car collides head-on with another, killing its male passenger. In the hospital, he meets the passenger's wife, Dr. Helen Remington, who was driving the car, and Dr. Robert Vaughan, who takes a keen interest in the brace holding James's shattered leg together and photographs it. Discovering that they are both aroused by the accident they experienced, Helen and James begin an affair and are drawn by Vaughan into a community of like-minded people who fetishize car crashes. Yeah, perfect. Mm. Perfect. This film premiered at the Cannes Film Festival. Yeah. <laughs> There's a hilarious... Have you seen it? <laughs> I haven't seen it, but I've read about it. Oh, my God. It is comedy gold. I, I need to, like, dig it out. I have posted it once before on Twitter, but it's basically this hilarious moment at the Cannes Film Festival press conference. The entire cast of the movie is there, along with David Cronenberg. And there's a member of the press that asks a question a predictably like exasperating question to David Cronenberg. And he basically accuses the director of like objectifying and exploiting his female stars because they're shown naked. (laughs) And like, why is it that it's always just the women who have to be naked and we don't see the male body parts and Jane Spader, his response is so funny. I can't even remember exactly what he said, but it was along the lines of, you don't understand anatomy, do you? It's because I'm having sex. And when a man is having sex, you don't get to see the penis. <laughs> and he's so deadpan about it. And Cronenberg, in you know classic Canadian fashion, tries to like eliminate the tension in the room. You're like, I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah. Oh, it's very cute. Like he's trying to like, you know, he's just trying to bring everybody back to a peaceful, happy place. You know? Even though he's just directed this extremely crazy movie. That's um, so nice. He's so he just crazy. remains polite and nice. And I think and you know he's a Pisces. Is he? Yeah. Aww. 
yeah. so cute. I'm sure he's a nice. He's a nice guy. <laughs> I just because <laughs> the films just really bum me out. Like... <laughs> I I mean I used to have like a kind of hit or miss relationship with his movies, but it was only until it was when I made a special like course for the Freud Museum where I had to sit and watch everything in one go and like find the narrative through it that I realized, oh, actually, I really love this. Mm -hmm. And I became so obsessed with watching his interviews on YouTube because he's a very generous interviewee. He's very open. He's very emotionally articulate. He's a true Pisces. And I just literally, I actually fell in love with him. I was like, I want to marry David. <laughs> like I became obsessed to the point where I actually even found out where he lives. I have his address, guys. Oh my gosh. Oh my God, that's amazing. <laughs> One day I'm going to show up at his door in Toronto. And um, I'm sure then he'll call the cops. But for that, for a brief moment, I'll be standing in front of him. But um, no, but seriously, the thing about Cronenberg is that it's rare to come across a director who's actually very well read in psychoanalysis. Mm -hmm. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, usually it's the directors are just like unconsciously proving the theory. But in this case, Cronenberg is truly like well-versed. He's read everything. He even made the film, of course, about, you know, Freud and Jung, The Dangerous Method. Oh, I do like that film, I have to say. Great film. Yeah great film and so he's always operating from that knowledge you know he has that base and his movies I feel are quite faithful to the psychoanalytic principle so with Crash I have to start off what I think is going on here Mm -hmm. please do with maybe like a what I think is sometimes a neglected philosophical element in the story which is a differentiation that has to be made or a distinction between beauty and the sublime. Oh, okay. So this is going off of the Irish philosopher Edmund Burke in the Romantic period. He postulated a difference between beauty in its classical meaning and the sublime. So he talked about beauty as being just a simple pleasure in seeing benign objects. So like, for example, carry on with your day and then you happen to see a beautiful flower mm-hmm. and you look over to it and you can appreciate objectively that it's beautiful. You love the colors, the shape of the petals. It smells nice. And you can say that is beautiful, but there's no danger of the flower overwhelming you. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, there's a clear separation between you and the flower and the flower is a benign object um, there's no, it doesn't have a threatening quality to it. And then you, it, it just allows you to carry on with your day. It doesn't interrupt you in a fundamental way. The sublime is a totally different beast. This is a pleasure in relation to an object of great magnitude, one that could potentially like destroy the observer. So Edmund Burke talks about the sublime as a greatness beyond all possibility of calculation or measurement or even imitation. It's an overwhelming feeling for grand power or cosmic vastness within the object. Freud also talked about the sublime and talked about how it invokes a degree of horror by what is dark, uncertain, and confused. So like, it's no longer just staring at a beautiful benign flower. Now you're like confronted with something 
you know, like the saying, like devastatingly beautiful. Yeah. So you feel like it could crush you. And that's not a bad thing. Like we don't have to attach a negative quality to that. We don't have to think about it like, oh, that's to be avoided or that's a terrible thing that happened to you, you encountered the sublime. <laughs> Actually, it's a very desirable thing. It's kind of like akin to when people say, I talked about this on, on my Patreon recently with a guest when we're talking about beauty. And I said, you know, like if you if you meet someone like extremely hot and all you can think is, I want you to ruin me. <laughs> Do you know what I'm saying? So it's like, it's no longer just like this thing that you can compartmentalize. You've seen the beauty, appreciate it, and then you go on with your day. Now it's like, it's like kind of what Lars von Trier even would call like the stone in the shoe. You know, yeah. it bothers you. It bothers. Now it's impinging on your day. It's like interfering. You have intrusive thoughts about this guy's eyes or his hair or whatever it is. And you actually want to be destroyed. Like not in a way, it's not in an oppressive way. It's not in an abusive way. There's some wall inside you that needs to come down and only something sublime that can overtake you can actually bring the wall down. You know what I'm saying? I know what you're saying. I just, is that why I feel sad when I see Ellen Delon? Oh, really? Oh my God. I, he's just so, he's just so beautiful. Yeah. He's just so beautiful, but he makes me like think, uh, he makes me feel like a teenager. Like yeah. he makes me feel like a really sad longing. <laughs> <laughs> That's the sublime. He's sublime. It's because he's so sublime. In like yeah. La Piscine or Rocco and his uh -huh. brothers. Oh my God. Wow. Yeah, okay. I've been able to get over it. That is exactly it. Yeah. That is exactly it. Because you feel in relation to the object, like your own agency and autonomy could easily just vanish. It's kind of like what Nicole Kidman describes in Eyes Wide Shut about the naval officer. Yeah. You know, like when she's like, my whole world, I was prepared to like trade it in for just one night with this guy, with a stranger, my husband, my kid, my house, my whole life. It meant nothing compared to the desire I had. That's the sublime. So the sublime must be very closely like tapping into your unconscious. Yes. Because it, it's like it reminds me of the kind of, of the thing that like Alain de Botton says about like familiarity. When you uh -huh. like meet someone and fall in love with them really, really fast. It's because they like strike something like recognizable in you. Yes. Something like anxious. That, like it's like a feeling of anxiety, but it's like pleasurable because it's familiar. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's so interesting because it's like it explains why so many beautiful people are quite benign. Yeah. Like when you see a lot of beautiful people, you're like, I can't even imagine having sex with you because yeah. <laughs> you're so there's something so like unsexual about mm -hmm. them. But then sometimes people can just be like they can just make you like immediately unhappy like, yeah. because you don't have them. <laughs> like, yeah. Yeah. It creates a desperate feeling of longing. Yeah. Um, and you are so right about it being deeply connected to the, to the subconscious, things that we're not aware of. The simple beauty takes place when you have mastery over it. It cannot touch you. Mm -hmm. You can gaze upon it and say, that is objectively beautiful. It takes all the boxes. It's beautiful on paper. And I can clearly separate myself from that. The sublime, it's sort of digging out something that reminds you that the ego is not the master of its own house. Mm -hmm. Now you're suddenly reminded, oh shit, I'm actually governed by things that I do not understand, things that are below the level of my awareness. And this 
thing now, this object outside of me, sees right through that. It has like this laser vision into me. And I know this is going to dis- disrupt the whole like nice little picture I've drawn about myself, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and it's going to crush me. But you know what? I, I'm all for the sublime. I'm very pro sublime, like justice for sublime. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> because it gets such a bad rap, I, especially in our culture. People misunderstand what that means. And that's why this movie Crash, I think. Like the initial release was met with intense controversy and opened to highly divergent reactions from critics. Yes, of course, some some people praised the film for its daring premise and like the originality aspect, but there were so much criticism for having like the graphic sexual violence. People were triggered by this movie. And I don't think, I mean, it's too easy to say it's just because it's people crashing their cars on purpose to get sexual arousal. That's too facile, you know? Because mm-hmm. there's so many movies like that. There's so many movies like Fast and the Furious where it's sexy, hot people and they're like taking risky rides in their fancy cars you know what I mean like there's always high speed car chases in movies and then that's like put side by side with sex this is a very specific thing this is making a correlation between self-harm through car crashes and that turning you on Mm -hmm. but I'm firmly convinced I'm so convinced that it's because it's reminding us about the sublime and we're uncomfortable with that we don't like seeing a cinematic representation of something that can be so compelling and arousing, but like is crashing into you. And it's like disrupting your, the little narrative you've constructed that you're a master of your life. We don't like that. That's so true because I didn't find any of the sex scenes upsetting, but I do find like the, the, like when like the boys are like chasing the girls and crashing into the <laughs> like like a did like perverted kiss chase <laughs> yeah like i did not like that at all and that's probably why yeah and that the fact that there's a whole subculture of these people you know yeah and they get together and they they test their limits further and further they're always pushing the envelope that it's something to do with a very overwhelming, very compelling energy that is eroticized that comes into your life and like maybe corrupts you. Mm. We've structured our civilization around the idea that we have to avoid being corrupted. And I take umbrage with that. A big part of growing up and tearing down unnecessary walls is accommodating some form of beneficial corruption. Mm-hmm. <laughs> You know, in a psychoanalytic sense, I'm not talking about like corruption in government. I'm talking purely at the kind of psychic level where, I don't know, maybe we need to be like blasted open a little bit. Yeah, that's interesting because I find it interesting that like we have this alongside Nymphomaniac where Uh she literally becomes corrupt in like a criminal sense. Yes. Like and actually she abandons her sexuality at that point. Mm-hmm. And like just becomes corrupt, like she just becomes like a corrupt member of society. Yeah. Like, which is, but it seems like it's like a job that really suits her. <laughs> like, and she's really good at it. And she gets like a lot of like, it's like the first time in, in the film that you see her get satisfaction from anything other than sex. Yeah. It's like you see her get like job satisfaction, which is really sweet, actually. Yeah. 
Um, so yeah, that's interesting. Exactly. And it's such a different vibe from like that office job where like the HR lady had to give her a talking to yeah. about her sex life. Yeah. And had to be like, you can leave, but it will be the same anywhere else. Like yeah. yeah. And she was forcing her to go like to these like lame group therapy sessions. That is such a good point that you're making. It's like the the sexual component was being repressed fully, you know, and systematically. Mm-hmm. And her livelihood was threatened on the basis of that. So basically what, what that HR lady was saying is that like the sublime is not allowed here. Yeah. You know, we have to keep things a certain way. And in a way she's right. Like if you want to live that life, you have to play by the rules. And the rules are you do not get overwhelmed, honey. Mm-hmm. As soon as she disembarks from there, like she, she basically pursues, as you said, a life of crime. Is that right? It's the mob, isn't it? Pretty much, yeah. So now she's like in this like unlawful space where there, you know, th- that corruptive energy is more like embedded. Obviously, not, none of this is to say that I'm like in any way encouraging like criminal behavior, <laughs> but you know what I'm saying? I'm just saying that it's like poetically interesting when we look at these deviant practices and these so-called paraphilias, these abnormal sexual drives, what they're really trying to do is they're trying to understand the sublime. They're trying to contend with it. Yeah. And I think like we all have our own version of like whatever like criminal behavior we would forbid ourselves. Yeah. And like it might be a good idea to try some of that behavior to like integrate it basically yes. integrate a little bit of the sublime can you microdose the sublime <laughs> love that <laughs> um I wish I could say that I've been able to do that I seem to be the type of person that just overdoses on the sublime <laughs> but maybe to avoid total disaster microdosing is the is the way forward just google image search Alain Delon <laughs> <laughs> You know who I do that with? Who? Colin Farrell. Oh, interesting. He's your sublime. He's my sublime. What is it? Like, just some people's faces just, like, oh, they're just, just made for you. It's so weird, isn't it? Yes. Um, I, like, I don't love him for himself at all. Like, it's total objectification. Oh, yeah. Like, yeah, I'm not going to fucking love him just, you know, like, you, you can't speak English? Like, no. <laughs> <laughs> like... <laughs> I'm not going to forgive these flaws <laughs> like I would in, a, in a, like a normal person I was in a relationship with because he's yeah. sublime. Yes. No, I can totally understand that. I would love to know who our viewers have that with mm-hmm. because like I'd kind of, I like, you know, I'd sort of, it'd be one of the childish things that I'd put aside until quite recently when someone on TikTok like stitched together a video of him from Plain Soleil and like then put it to a Lana Del Rey song and I almost broke like I was like oh Jesus doesn't work for the rest of the day like it was just can you imagine the combination that's that's, that is heavy that's huge Lana Del Rey is also quite sublime yes she is like that's what I mean it's part that's why actually why I don't listen to music because Mm. I can't really stand too many encounters with the sublime Mm. I can't get anything done Mm-hmm. But like, you know, sometimes I can like put on Lana Del Rey and look at Alain Delon and yeah. I could like stay there until I starved. Yeah. <laughs> so relatable. Yeah. <laughs> I, for a while I had that with Alex Turner from the Arctic Monkeys. Oh my God, that's so funny. He was my sublime. He, <laughs> even though he's just a little twink. He is a little twink. 
but <laughs> but sometimes that that's fine yeah I mean whatever whatever is your sublime yeah there's something about Alex Turner I don't know what it is but he just does it for me I mean I think there's a lot of women out there that would agree with you I yeah. think my Moran is like super obsessed with him really yeah yeah he's a total babe I sometimes also get that from some women too maybe like Linda Evangelista or Stella Tennant oh interesting yeah I mean those are very formative influences in your life yeah very um that's so interesting actually I was like a super drunk at a party on Friday and I met this girl who was like she uh, I just like met this girl for like five minutes Uh and I was like really I was like obviously drunk so I like turned to Alex and I was like that girl is exactly my type like a posh milky girl (laughs) like like, (laughs) milky and I was like I don't know what that means but that is what that's what I think of her as wow what's the milky quality I don't know I think it's like milk maidy like it's like um slony actually Okay. Yeah, I think it's slony, like weirdly, like mm. totally not in my like social bracket mm. at all. Like, so it's obviously a bit of a, it's a weird thing. Ah, it's someone I actually wouldn't like, yeah, someone I wouldn't meet because I am not a posh person and I um, don't know any posh people. So I think it's ah. like, yeah, whatever it is, a bit of a lower middle class self-hatred maybe. Yeah. <laughs> So who so who's your ultimate like Sloney poster girl? Sloney poster girl. Um, I'm trying to think. It will be some kind of like I don't know why I'm thinking Princess Diana, but that's not probably not what you had in mind. I think like the hair needs to be longer. Yeah. Um, you know who's a bit like oh, I'm trying to think. There's definitely I'm I can't think of anyone right now, but I will get back to you and okay. I'll like do some I'll do a post. But yeah, I'd love to hear what our listeners I want to hear who you obsess over 100% because sometimes like when people say like oh I really think that person's hot I'm always like really that like that generically attractive person (laughs) like they're so benign but I guess someone some one person's benign is someone else's sublime exactly well said (laughs) well said exactly well I mean I have nothing else to say about Crash that's basically my take I think that take is perfect I think that yeah I just yeah I don't have anything else to say about it either we've arrived at the end of erotic cinema guys Oh, guys thanks for coming with us on this journey yeah I mean it's been a wild ride we still have also runs with Dario yeah and then we'll take a small break and then we'll come back with another series I'm kind of like what are you hoping to do next I know we leave it up to the listeners, but like, I mean, listen, I'm dying to do tech. Like that is that was oh your God, pick, yeah, tech. <laughs> when you said tech, like I just my eyes lit up. Like I was like, yes, we need to do that. So yeah. hopefully the listeners will choose that. Oh God, I hope it's still gonna be good. I feel like by the time the listeners <laughs> choose tech, it's gonna be obsolete. Like <laughs> we're gonna go back to analog. Yeah, we'll have to go back to analog. Like. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, definitely. Always tech. I'd also love to do another horror series. I'd love to. I think because it's like, you know, it's winter. Yeah. It's the time. It's the time to watch horror. Yeah. Yeah, I'd love to. Mm. I mean, you know, if, if people choose like mental illness too, I would be down for that too. I would be down I, for that. Always seeing new content for that. 
Maybe it's time for me to face my fears and watch some addiction films. Mm. Oh, God. Just don't watch Blue Bag Life, please. No, not Blue Bag Life. (laughs) Not Blue Bag Life. But, oh, my God, it's going to be horrendous. I can already... It's like, this is going to be, like, flooding for me. But, I don't know. I'll do it for you guys, for our beloved listeners. I'll do it for some more donations. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Absolutely. Well, thank you for listening to our final episode in this series. Look out for also rants mm-hmm. and join us on all social media. As always, tell your friends about us as well. Yeah, please do tell your friends, write reviews, write reviews, give us five stars, give us five stars, like us, do that kind of thing. <laughs> we really appreciate it. It would help other listeners find us. Yeah. Tell other listeners to enter into parasocial relationship with us. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, mm-hmm.